Howdy, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast, the podcast of the Georgetown University College Republicans. I'm your host, Ian Cruz, and today we'll be taking the next stop of our coverage of the 2022 midterm elections. In this episode, we'll be going to two states in radically different corners of the country. We'll be going down to North Carolina and then all the way up to Alaska. And joining me for this episode, we have a native North Carolinian and a native Alaskan to talk about their home states and about what could happen in November. Now, sadly, this is the last episode we have before the elections actually happen in less than two weeks, but the coverage never stops. We'll continue grinding out great content for y'all even after November 8th. Now, that said, let's get right into it. Joining me now is Sophia, a native North Carolinian, to talk about her home state. Now, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. My name is Sophia Toback, and I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm studying economics with a minor in environmental science here at Georgetown University. I'm in the college, interested in pursuing um, different types of energy policy to build a cleaner, more efficient future through politics and science. That's awesome. Thank you. And let's let's get right into it. So North Carolina has an important Senate race this year. Absolutely. And this year you, you're seeing uh, incumbent Congressman Ted Budd take on former Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, uh, Sherry Bustos. Correct mm-hmm. me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> but many election pundits, so my, even myself included, if I'm even a political pundit, uh, think that this race will go Republican, that it's rated to be uh, not solid Republican, but more, far more likely than not will be uh, Ted Budd will win. And the debate now is over how much will he win? As I said, that's 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 the point in which many political pundits disagree. Now, what are your thoughts on the race and the candidates and what are people on the ground saying? So my perspective on this race is that both Sherry Beasley and Ted Budd are the typical what what North Carolinians think a good Republican and a good Democrat should be. So Sherry Beasley is like your moderate. She's running on sort of that Roy Cooper moderate Democrat type um, platform. She noticed that when Roy Cooper won, it was a similar political climate to the one in North Carolina now. So she's trying to emulate the platform Roy Cooper ran on and won with um, in 2020. Whereas Ted Budd is more interesting in my mind because I think he walks the fine line between being a MAGA Republican and not saying anything that could get him um, too too far into the headlines of mainstream um, uh, public press. So, for example, he doesn't say anything too far right or outside of the Overton window and the discourse of um, Democrats. So I think it's interesting to see a candidate both play to the heart of MAGA Republican values while walking that fine line to get those moderate Republican voters. So I I do believe he will win. North Carolina is a traditionally red state. We've had um, only we had a Democrat in 2008 and a Democrat in 1998. But besides that, in the past 20 years, we've had very few um, Democrats in the Senate from North Carolina. And additionally, looking back at previous races, both times um, we elected a president, the pre- the Republican, it went Republican by double digits. So 
I I believe North Carolina is a red state through and through. And Ted Budd is doing a really great job of playing to both moderate Republicans and MAGA Trump Republicans. Yeah, that's certainly something that I've heard about Ted Budd, too. Mm. Uh, I mean, he had a contested primary, somewhat contested primary with the former governor, Pat McCrory, who's played very much the moderate uh, card. And I think he's still... Uh, refused to endorse Ted Budd, which I think is interesting. very, very interesting because you've seen more moderate Republicans coalesce around like a Trump endorsed candidate, uh, even if they don't like them. Mm. I, like Arizona comes to mind yeah. where uh, the current governor, Doug Ducey, and Karen Taylor Robeson, the, the, the more moderate primary challenger, have both endorsed Carrie Lake, who is the Trump endorsed candidate who's now the Republican nominee. But mm-hmm. if you want to learn more about Arizona, please check out our last episode. After you listen to this one, we break down that great state's race um, for governor and for Senate. But in North Carolina, keeping the focus on the Tar Heel State, I, I think that a lot of people say, oh, well, 2008, Barack Obama carried North Carolina. Mm. But uh, the, I, I think a lot of people are also saying that was a fluke. A lot of Democrats still think North Carolina is... A very swingy state. I mean, uh, Donald Trump won the state in 2020 by a little over a point. I think it was between one it to was two points. 49.9 Trump, 48.6 Biden. Exactly. A little over um, a point uh, yeah. for Trump. And that was his closest victory uh, in the state. He That was a state where he had the smallest margin of victory. Wow. Um, so that would that, I think that North Carolina going red in, in a pretty blue national environment still shows that it's a red state. I, I would yeah. I would certainly agree with that. I mean, the, the national environment was like Democrat plus four and a half mm-hmm. if we take the popular vote total. Also, 2008 was won by – it went for Obama by 0.3%. It was so close. It was very close. Like this is a red state through and through. The only other time we went blue was in 1976. Um, my dad was five years old then. So I think the sphere of politics has changed a lot in North Carolina for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, and, and, and to think about the, the, the geography of North Carolina, like you have such different demographics. Absolutely. I mean, in like the northeastern part of the state, you got the more minority but working class part, mm-hmm. which you saw go have like shift heavily towards Trump. But you also have the Charlotte suburbs that maybe shifted more towards Biden. Uh, so I think that that's something we talked about with uh, about Wisconsin in a previous episode. So also check out that episode mm-hmm. if you want to more about Wisconsin. But. And, and we'll talk about North Carolina's geography a little bit later, but it's just very interesting how the the state is very different depending where you are. Like the research triangle is just very blue. Absolutely. You go to the like, Outer Banks. G- Outer Banks. Or more rural North Carolina. Or you so red. Yeah. Like Western North Carolina is very like blood red yeah. Republican territory. And, and I think that that's really interesting to have such different in a way, like political cultures across mm-hmm. the state, you would expect that with larger states, but I would say North Carolina is a medium-sized state. It's not too big, but it's not small. Yeah, it's interesting. The other thing piece of that is we have a lot of major universities, for example, UNC, Duke. These are very um, nationally state. acclaimed universities that attract very liberal ideas, people, and um, create that college town left-leaning aura around them. For example, in North Carolina, Durham is extremely blue. It's a blue stronghold, and that's right where Duke is. So I think 
as these universities stay prominent, they also and grow in prominence across the country. Dukes has shot up in the rankings as well as UNC as these universities become more and more nationally recognized um, amongst everyone in the United States. I do believe they're going to have a stronger sway on the politics of North Carolina and the areas around them. That's really interesting that you that the university that the college towns can really yeah. uh, influence politics that Absolutely. greatly because a lot of you know like we're in D.C. but we don't vote in D.C. Mm. I mean, as Republicans, I would say voting in D.C. is a little hard to swallow because <laughs> it's very hard to win in D.C. Um, so I'm keeping my Texas registration, but in North Carolina, I mean, they call it the Research Triangle for a reason. Yeah, uh, like that's. Where all the the liberal universities are, and that's where mm-hmm. the bulk, I think, of Democratic votes are outside of maybe Charlotte. Charlotte's weird, though, because it's a banking city. I would say, fiscally, it's conservative. People go there to get investment banking jobs, but culturally, it's more... It's like the fiscal conservative social liberal. liberal. Yeah, like, it's a yeah. city where you can get a sweet green salad, but then you'll also turn around and there's a million investment banks. So um, you have to take that with a grain of salt. And I think Charlotte, Charlotte actually has a, um, the Charlotte County has a conservative representative, um, Dan Bishop. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So it, like it's Like the southwestern, southeastern part of, of uh, mm-hmm. Charlotte. Yeah. And it's those, the like, second suburbs. bluest area of North Carolina outside of RTP in Warren, Wake County, Forsyth, that little cluster is more liberal for sure. But Charlotte, it's it's a it's mm. an interesting down there. Yeah, that's a good segue actually to my next question, which is about the state Supreme Court. I know that <laughs> we normally don't talk about state Supreme Courts. Normally it's the federal one. But the state Supreme Court blocked the congressional map drawn by the GOP-controlled state legislature, mm-hmm. which would have packed Democrats into three districts, so two in the Raleigh-Durham area, and then one in Charlotte. And it would have made one competitive district in northeastern North Carolina, which is trending Republican. So it would have probably, this year in particular, would have gone uh, all red except for those three uh, very compact blue you know, you, Democrats could run a lamppost and still win seats. Uh, do you think that the Democrats have a geography problem in North Carolina that would warrant Republicans to draw such maps and then get away with it? Meaning, uh, like we talked about with Wisconsin, is that Democrats are so packed in two cities, Madison mm-hmm. and Milwaukee, that Republicans can get away with a... map. So they pack the Democrats in those two cities, and then every other district is red. Is that the same thing that could happen in North Carolina? Or are there more blue spots that can make things more purple? This is a fascinating question, and you um, lit a flame inside my uh, heart with this one as a a stats slash geography nerd. So (laughs) I feel strongly that Republicans and Democrats both have opposing issues in North Carolina. So um, I thought I'd bring you some numbers to break down this issue a little bit. So 36% of North Carolina's 7.8 million voting voters are Democrats, whereas only 30% are Republican. That doesn't seem quite right now, does it? So that relieves 33% that are registered as unaffiliated. But these unaffiliated voters almost solely vote libertarian or with the Constitution Party or red. And additionally, we have a higher red Republican voting turnout rate in the state of North Carolina. So with that in mind, 
let's delve into this issue. Like you said, we have two very blue spots in North Carolina, um, the Wake County area, Raleigh-Durham, RTP, and Charlotte. So yes, Democrats do have a problem, as well as Asheville, where in three little clusters, two smaller than the Raleigh-Durham area, um, all of the blue voters are there. So. Even the Greensboro area, they, they like to pack them. Yeah. The even, current map has Greensboro packed into its own district too. Yeah, absolutely. And even um, down in like the Fayetteville area, it starts to, that that can even be packed in as well. That has gone blue in some years. So it's interesting. You're right. The Democrats do have this problem where it can be packed and cracked when it comes down to voting. But I do think um, Republicans also have another problem that North Carolina is attracting a lot of business, a lot of wealthy, rich people interested in science, a lot of people interested in tech, but they're all going to those blue areas. So these blue areas are getting more densely populated. So on the whole, it might seem like North Carolina is getting more blue or at least socially liberal. Um, But in reality, these blue areas are getting more and more densely populated so blue areas are getting bluer and red areas are staying the same. So I think ultimately that conservative strategy of packing and cracking Democrats into little districts won't hold up for much longer as North Carolina's population explodes. Um, ultimately, I think it'll come down to it, – it's going to be a mystery how that next map gets drawn. Um, the other- you have a new map? In the next couple of years, because that the current map that will be used for this cycle is only for this this mm-hmm. year. So in 2024, when the House is up again for, for election, it'll be a completely different map. Yeah. And that's why you know there, there are Supreme Court, state Supreme Court elections this year in North Carolina that if Republicans flip them, Republicans can get away with a more um, gerrymandered map. Yeah. Per se, that they, that they can uh, get more it. seats out of that. Like they have in the past, I know in 2018, a lot of Democrats were furious with the map that that it only packed, that it packed Democrats into three seats. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the state Supreme Court overturned that. And we had the map that was used in 2020, which gave the Democrats five seats out of North Carolina's 13 uh, seats. Which is almost, which is bigger than three. We know from our yeah. yeah from our math classes, but I think if you just were to look at the proportion of Democrats to Republicans registered in North Carolina, you'd say, "Oh my goodness, Democrats need more states than North Carolina." But if you look at that chunk of unaffiliated voters, it starts to get very hazy. And then when you look at those actual voting maps, you see that it is close, but all those blue votes come from very small areas. So North Carolina does have that problem where all of its blue voters congregate in small areas. At the same time, North Carolina has a very diverse ethnic population. For example, we have lots of Latin, Latino, Latina voters, as well as a lot of black voters. Um, And there's something else interesting happening there. In the past, those have been Democratic strongholds. But we're finding in North Carolina that Latinos and black folk are less tied to the Democratic Party than their grandparents were. So it's going to be interesting to see how these shifting demographics, more tech, more young people, more snowbirds, um, how that changes our voting patterns and 
as well, how does this shift in the way minorities vote? How does that change our voting pattern? So ultimately, like you said, that new map coming out is going to be fascinating and ultimately, I believe, will influence future elections in the state of North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, I think minority trends are certainly something I'm going to be looking at on election night. Mm. I mean, you talked about the Latino vote, the Hispanic Latino vote. That has been something a lot of people picked up on in 2020. Will that continue? Like we look at South Texas. I know I sound like a broken record when I bring up South Texas, Florida, (laughs) you know, Miami-Dade, and also parts of Southern California trended heavily towards President Trump. And, and, And whether that will continue in virtually the entire country is is going to be seen. Um, I think North Carolina has an above average Latino population. Mm-hmm. And so, it's growing too. And it's gr- so. Exactly. It's, it's the fastest growing demographic in the country. And so my thinking is that if Republicans continue to chip away at the Hispanic vote, I mean, we're seeing polling data that shows Republicans at 40%, higher than 40% with Hispanics. Those are ridiculous numbers yeah. when you think about it. That's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother episode. And I'm sure we'll dig more into policy once uh, the elections are over. But North Carolina, I think that that Latino population, like like Virginia, I mean, Virginia, you saw the Latino population vote more for Glenn Youngkin. So I think you could very well see the Latino population vote for Ted Budd and and Republicans down ballot. It'll it'll be interesting to see it play out. For sure. Uh, And speaking of, you know, your elected officials, North Carolina has two Republican senators Mm -hmm. or, well... Uh, in name, they're they're Republican. You can contest wh- how faithful they are to the Republican voter base, but the incumbent senator Richard Burr is retiring, uh, and he did vote to convict former President Trump last yeah. year. Uh, and th- of course, the other senator is Tom Tillis, who was just reelected in 2020. Many anticipated he would lose to Cal Cunningham. Then it was he a had tight race, tight race. Very, and it, everybody was like, oh. Trump was going to win North Carolina by a larger margin than Tom Tillis. Tom Tillis actually won North Carolina by a larger margin than Trump did. And I think mm-hmm. that's because of the scandals against Cal Cunningham that came out at yeah. the last minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tom that's, Tillis won at 48.7 to 46.9. So you can see more people voted third yeah. party. They didn't like either candidate. But Tom Tillis gets that six years. He got the plurality. Yeah. But what do people on the ground? I mean, that that's a good indication of what people think in North Carolina of their two senators. Uh, who, what what are people saying about Richard Byrne and that he's retiring, and about Tom Tillis? Are they are they still liked in North Carolina? Do you think Richard Burr would have been received well by North Carolina Republicans even after his vote to convict Trump, or has the tide turned and like no, we want a more hardcore conservative? Like Bud, because I think relative to those two, he is more conservative. Mm-hmm. But do they want a more the a, a Republican Party that's more conservative? So um, it's interesting you mentioned voting to convict or not to convict Trump, because I think this is a big differentiator amongst the two types of Republicans I have perceived in North Carolina. So I would break voters into four boxes across North Carolina and across the U.S. First being traditional Republicans who back candidates like Burr, who don't like Donald Trump. Um, like the who, McCain type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The John McCain, um, mm-hmm. John Kasich, um, even Mitt Romney to some degree, your traditional Republican. Next would be your MAGA Republicans who back Trump and detest these more traditional Republicans as they're seen as cheating on the party. Um, and these people back candidates like uh, DeSantis and Hawley, 
um, more uh, further right candidates. And then the third party being <laughs> traditional Democrats who are more like um, moderate in the grand scheme of things like Sherry Beasley mm-hmm. um, as well as Roy Cooper. And then more establishment. Democrats. Yeah. 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 Um, and then obviously there's the far left like mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, AOC. AOC, the squad. Yes, absolutely. Um, so in my mind, there's these four blocks of voters and each state has a different ratio of the four. In North Carolina, I think we have very few far left voters, maybe uh, a few in Durham, maybe a few in Asheville. Yeah, I would say Durham and Asheville because they're like the more like youth towns. Yeah. Whereas in Research Triangle Park and Charlotte, where the banking city and the city uh, Raleigh Research Triangle Park, it's a big pharma place. It's big into tech. There's SAS. Uh, which is a large They're company. They're like pro big business. So there's lots of business, lots yeah. of innovation. I find that they back more traditional Democrats mm-hmm. um, and then as well as traditional Republicans. And then outside of those areas, <laughs> that's where you find an interesting mix of the traditional Republicans and MAGA Republicans. So that being said, I think Ted Budd is in a really interesting spot because he is a MAGA Republican. He speaks to these MAGA voters all over rural North Carolina and outside of the Triangle and those other blue areas we mentioned. But he can also scoop up those traditional Republicans because he's done a great job staying out of the mainstream media, not saying anything too crazy. Not not, not drawing controversy, yeah, essentially. So, yeah, pretty much. Um, he's kind of flown under the radar screen along with a lot of this race. So Yeah, like no I've no major media network I don't see on the daily is talking about North Carolina. Yeah, like it, it's a very yeah. under the radar because I think both parties know how it's pretty much gonna go. I think that's why. Even mm. though I would argue Ohio will probably vote to the right of North Carolina. And a lot of people are talking about Ohio. But I think yeah. that's just because J.D. Vance is a much more controversial-ish person, you could argue. Like, he's he's more willing to say, like, bold things. Yeah. Neither of these candidates are yeah. super controversial. They're, like I said in the beginning like of this a typical, podcast, like, they fit the mold. Yeah. Like, um, what you would you would think of a generic Republican or generic Democrat? Sherry Beasley, I would say, and Ted Budd fit that mold absolutely. pretty well. Um, but I do think Ted Budd... His greatest strength is the fact that he can scoop up those MAGA Republicans and those traditional mm-hmm. Republicans. Yeah, the Trump endorsement, I'm sure, has helped him a lot with that. Yeah, absolutely. So pretty much um, to answer your question, how how do people feel about these two senators is it it was that they wanted uh, – there were a lot of traditional Republicans. That's how we got Burr. But we're getting – we have fractions of people – moving toward that MAGA movement. And we have another fraction of people moving toward the center. So ultimately, the party, the Republican Party of North Carolina is becoming more and more polarized. Um, And I think that's the beauty of Ted Budd's campaign is he knits those two together. Um, But obviously, we had a moderate Republican and a slightly further to the right Republican and not a Democrat. I think that's representative of the bulk of North Carolina, Carolinians. Um, But yeah, I I think Ted Budd, his ability to bring those two blocks of Republicans together will lead him to a victory in this state. So just to follow up on that, who is the most popular Republican in North Carolina? You know, 
this is I. I'm Who is stumped. the idol that everybody's like? Oh my gosh! Like, I'm stumped because I I live in Raleigh, and I hear a lot about Tom Tillis. You either love him or you hate him. And I'm guessing in Raleigh they must love Roy Cooper. Oh uh, well, it's the Democrat it's governor. Miss. It's hit or miss. Really? Um, he's not left enough for them. No, actually, I've found that my particular area of Raleigh is pretty conservative. Wow. Um, socially, at least. Wow. Um, granted, I live That's in very hard to find. a lot of old people. Uh, so okay, I feel like Richard Burr was loved. He uh, he just flew under the radar screen. And then there was a fraction of people who were like, he's, he's, a, he's a rhino. He's so liberal. And then Tom Tillis, he actually went to my church, um, but he... He brought forward more headlines. He was either loved or hated, whereas Richard Burr was able to fly under that radar screen until the a lot Trump conviction. Until the Trump conviction vote, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it was yeah. interesting because that Trump conviction vote was polarizing. Um, like I said, we have those two blocks of Republicans, and they're getting further and further apart from each other. And I think in the same way, we see a lot of states who have those two blocks of Democrats who are getting further and further apart. Like one's borderline socialist, one's a Democrat like you see in Charlotte or Raleigh. But ultimately, polarization within the two political parties is um, a problem in this country. And uh, North Carolina is no exception from this rule. So. Um, I, I think it makes sense for Bud to run in North Carolina as somewhere slightly in between a sheer MAGA Republican and a traditional Republican. I don't think a true hardcore MAGA like DeSantis could win in North Carolina, but I also don't think someone like John Kasich or Mitt Romney could win in North Carolina. Mm. Um, you got to find the right balance. That right balance, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people say Laura Trump, who's Donald Trump's uh, daughter-in-law, the wife of Eric, who's Georgetown alum. So, Koya Saxa. There we Koya go. Koya Saxa for sure. But one interesting figure within North Carolina GOP who has been very controversial, and I say that, it doesn't understatement, is <laughs> outgoing Congressman Madison Cawthorn. Oh, yes. So, he was seen as a huge rising star in the Republican Party. He was 25 when he was first elected. A lot of people. Myself included was like, okay, we'll have a younger congressman here for the Republicans who could maybe uh, animate the the youth conservative base. But I would argue he has flopped in many ways mm -hmm. uh, because not necessarily policy wise. I think he's he's remained committed it's to, to what life. it's it's more his personal life. I think he's committed. He he was committed to the you know the more MAGA agenda, and I think he's voted pretty much aligned with a lot of people of that faction of, of, of the party. I believe he's in the Freedom Caucus, too. Mm -hmm. So he's been, I think, what he advertised policy-wise. And that's not where I would say his his uh, stardom kind of fell. It was, as you say, the personal life. Yeah. And all like the, the videos and the photos that came out about him yeah. and what he did with his cousin mm -hmm. uh, kind of doomed him. And he did lose that primary very narrowly, I will say. Mm. Mm. So I do think... It, part of the reason Madison Cawthorn flopped is because North Carolinians want a candidate they can believe in. They want someone who, quite frankly, is true to their word and lives out a lifestyle that's admirable. And mm -hmm. that second category, I don't think yeah. voter voters judged him for that for sure. Absolutely, like North Carolina is a more religious state. Yeah. Um, it's I would say culturally, it's very 
wholesome driving through North Carolina. You'll see peaches on the side of the road and small churches. It's one of those states. They don't Mm -hmm. want someone who's embroiled in scandal. That being said, I... Let alone having maybe sexual affairs Mm -hmm. with your cousin. Yeah, that's a big Um, no-no. Yeah, but there's so many excellent universities in North Carolina. We have Duke, UNC, NC State, um, Wake Forest, I believe App State. I believe that's actually where Ted Budd went is App State and then Wake Forest. He went to um, NC State. Oh, really? And he went to NC State and then he went to Yale. He played football. He was a football yeah. guy. So I, wow. he's been – so I follow him on social media, on Instagram. And he's been going a lot of the Wolfpack games because yeah. NC State's doing pretty well. So he's yeah. going there and he's campaigning in that sense. But, uh, yeah, he's certainly, I think – that only further proves my point, though. Yeah, like I think excellent, I think it definitely proves the point of he's definitely embodying that southern uh, culture of the sense of you know he's a football guy. And yeah, I know we'll, we'll get yeah. into football as well when we talk about George and Herschel Walker. Oh yeah, yeah, the but, legend, NFL and, and University of Georgia legend. But Ted Bud, uh, not Ted Bud, Bo Hines is really appealing, saying I'm a young guy, I've played football mm-hmm. in North Carolina, is my home state. This is my university. You know, yeah, yeah. this is my people. This is my culture, and I'm going to fight for that now in Congress. It's it's I think a very strong message, and if, and yeah. he's married. That's like uh, so. Awesome, you know, it's a very like I'm going to start a family when I'm younger. I care about you know faith, family, and flag. Like that's the three yeah. I would say tenets of Southern conservatism. It's you know faith, having family flag exactly. Repeat. I think that that's uh, certainly something that the Republican Party is that like if I had to boil down what. A Southern Republican p- movement looks like it's that. Yeah, and I think for that sure. that's certainly embodying the entire country. You're seeing, you know, because con- Republicans tend to be more Christian. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more, you know, socially conservative. They tend to be more. I would they, say they frugal with their younger. money. They get married they can, younger. They have more children, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But I do think because we have so many opportunities, we see congressmen from state. We see congressmen from App State, like all these excellent universities. There's a lot of rising talent within North Carolina. And I feel that the Republican Party is really optimistic about these rising figures within the Republican Party. So although Madison Cawthorn didn't work out, he didn't really truly live out those Republican values and those Christian values. Ultimately, um, I do think the Republican Party is optimistic that there are... um, alternatives like and, Bo yeah absolutely yeah. um he th- there's a saying in north carolina uh god glory football and i think he, he uh he he's got that down pat so it's going to be interesting to see what happens there but i do think madison cawthorn north carolina voted him out for a reason and he's being replaced for a reason and yeah North Carolina knows what it likes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Young North people. Carolina definitely knows what it what it likes. And one last question I want to ask you is that incumbent Democratic Governor Roy Cooper, who spoke at Georgetown not too long ago, he's oh, yeah. chair of the of the Democrat Governors Association. Uh, he's term limited in twenty twenty four, meaning he can't run for reelection. Yep. What do you? Th- who do you think would be the best Republican to contend in the next gubernatorial election? Who would be the next Republican? Who would be the ideal Republican governor for you? Mm. Okay, this is a toughie. Ultimately, I'm, I don't feel like I'm fully qualified to answer this question, not to pull an Amy Comey Barrett, but I'd, I have to do <laughs> some Ginsburg research. Role. I'd have to uh, look at voting records. I'd have to look at um, you know people's life stories to find someone who I felt fit North Carolina, um, and it would be merely my opinion on what I felt was best for the state 
that being said, <laughs> I feel like the most likely Republican candidate for governor is our current lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson. And he's awesome. I actually Love Mark met Robinson. him. Um, it was a great story. One of my good friends um, was running for NC TARS. That's North Carolina Teenage Republicans. Uh, I guess president and my best friend was the current president. So I was an election official. Um, my job was to nice. have the ballots. Election so, security. Yeah. Election um, integrity. But since Love this guy worked it. for Mark Robinson, Mark Robinson offered to have a campaign lunch for um, his name's Tucker Coombs. He actually currently works for Richard Burr uh, as a page. But Tucker Coombs, um, who worked for Mark Robinson, um, Mark Robinson and his wife Yolanda had a campaign lunch in the lieutenant governor's mansion. So I got to go there. I got to meet the lieutenant governor and his wife, have lunch. And I told them my uncle's a huge fan. And he said, give me your phone. We'll make a video for your uncle. Um, and I sent it that's to so Ian. That's so awesome and wholesome. And that's, yeah, he was like a, that. such a sweet guy. And after the election was over and his beloved right-hand intern man, Tucker, won. He gave a speech on the importance of being true to yourself in politics and being okay uh, when it's not popular to say what you want to say, being able to go against the grain and- Having a backbone and, having and, a backbone. and staying true to, true to your principles and your values. Yeah. And ultimately, Mark Robinson has had scandals. He has um, gotten negative press, but he does have a backbone. And I do think he, amongst the Republican Party in North Carolina, he's quite popular. So I think that's a, a likely candidate for the governor. Um, he's, I think and he's, he's mentioned got running. Resumes. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got the resume for him. He's lieutenant governor right now, right? So yeah, he's yeah. The his, number two. Yeah. And it's an interesting dynamic that you guys have a Democrat governor, Republican lieutenant governor. I'm sure yeah. it makes meetings very interesting. You know, we've actually. Um, mostly had Democrats as governor. We had a mm. Republican in 2012, and Ray Cooper, right? Believe was your last Republican governor, right? Um, I couldn't even tell you. Uh, 2012. Mm, I don't know. I I was uh I was nine, so um. <laughs> not too involved in the political scene yet. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to look at that history. We are a red state with blue governors, and I think that's an interesting dichotomy. Um, but as North Carolina, like you said leans red but tentatively red it's, it's like it's like a, a pretty like red shade of purple if that yeah, makes sense yeah it's like an, a mauve a mauve yeah yeah, yeah. like it it will it could definitely go blue but it reminds me of much a grape. more likely than not it will go republican yeah it reminds me of a grape like you know how you don't have purple grapes they're red grapes but mm. they look purple that's north carolina it's red okay. but it looks purple all right um, but that's a good analogy there you go yeah yeah thank you um, so it's going to be interesting to see if we get our first Republican governor since 2012. Um, will it be Mark Robinson? I I, I could totally see it. Um, maybe we can come get him to speak at Georgetown first. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd awesome. be he'd be a great speaker, and he I think would be a great leader. I think for the Republicans in North Carolina. But thank you so much for coming on, Sophia. I uh, really appreciate appreciate you coming on, and please feel free to come come on any time again. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. And I'll see you guys at the polls down in North Carolina. Sounds Bye. great. And now it gives me great pleasure to welcome Mia to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Ian.
So just a little bit about me. My name is Mia Kushner. I'm actually not an Alaskan native, but I do appreciate uh, that kudos. I've been living up there for the past couple years and really have gotten to get a deep dive into Alaska. So currently a senior at Georgetown. I'm in the School of Foreign Service and I study international politics and economics. That's awesome. Now, Alaska has garnered a lot of attention uh, over the summer in August after your special election after uh, the late Don Young passed away earlier this year. There was a special election to fill his seat. And this tested Alaska's new ranked choice voting system, whereby the plurality of votes don't count. It's a matter of when you get your ballot, you rank one, two, three, four. I believe four candidates make the general election and you rank the top four. Uh, in whatever order you choose, and then they tabulate the results based off of your rankings until somebody hits 50% of the votes. And it's especially causing controversy among Republicans, given this special election in August. We saw Republicans get around 60% of the vote, and Democrats the remaining 40%, yet the Democrat, Mary Poltola, who's now a congresswoman, ended up winning and serving, at least for these couple of months, until November. Do you think ranked choice voting is better for American democracy or was the system before ranked choice voting uh, a better option for Alaska? I think it's really hard when you're looking at ranked choice voting in terms of Alaska. So ballot measure two only passed by a little over 50 percent of the vote. So it barely scraped by. And I know you outlined a little bit of how the ranked choice voting system works. But when we look at it in the context of Alaska, There are very few candidates, and when you do restrict it to four, I mean, it it keeps it at the few. It restricts it to the point that I think it's very hard for a candidate to advance. So even if your candidate is not popular in any voting system, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become popular or have an advantage in ranked choice voting. I mean, if we look at the last vote, that's essentially what has happened, is you still have Palin and Peltola being the main running candidates. When you have a candidate that's not necessarily popular amongst the people. I don't think it matters in that small of a setting of, you know, how much of the vote they get, if it's ranked choice or not. If they're not popular, ranked choice voting is not necessarily going to advance the candidate. So while I think maybe you could look at other cases such as Maine to evaluate how this works when you might have more folks running and more candidates. I think for Alaska, it's such a restricted pool and there's such a deep set base in both Peltola and Palin that it's really hard to look at that as a measure for the rest of the United States. Yeah, and I know uh, this election might be a little unique considering you have, I'd say, three relatively well-known candidates. I mean, Mary Potola, of course, is now the incumbent representative. You have Sarah Palin, former governor and VP nominee, and Nick Begich, if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, please let me know. And his family has a long line of, ironically, being in democratic politics in the great state of Alaska. But what are your thoughts on Congresswoman Mary Potola? Is she a typical mainland Democrat, which do you, would you classify her in the same bucket as a Nancy Pelosi, as a typical, like, Democrat, uh, or do you think her friendship with Sarah Palin and her openness to back the Second Amendment mm-hmm. distinguishes her enough that she'll be her own independent voice? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And just to go back a little bit to something you had said, just because I do think it's an interesting point, is where those baggage votes went, is that if you break down how the voting went, it's incredibly hard to make the argument that the baggage votes actually hurt Sarah Palin's chances. So in round one, you had the P- Peltola win. Palin was not ranked above her in terms of 
you know, that scope. Mm -hmm. So even if it was a regular election, you still have Peltola leading. When you take the baggage votes and you break them out to get to round two, you have about 11,000 of which were exhausted. You have 27,000 of which went to Palin and then only 15 that went to Peltola. So 15,000. So I think it's incredibly hard to say that these baggage votes were going to help Palin because or I'm sorry, we're going to hurt Palin because ultimately more baggage votes went to Palin than went to Peltola. So this is kind of what I was saying before is that if your candidate is popular, I think they're able to continue that popularity through the ranked choice voting. But ultimately, if the candidate is not popular, ranked choice voting is not going to help them become popular or change their popularity. Um, I mean, ultimately, Palin was falling behind Peltola. And it is a flaw of the Republican Party to have these two different candidates that Voters have to choose between. If you were to collect it all into one pool, a very strong pool behind, say, Palin, you would have better election results. Meanwhile, with the ranked choice voting, you were able to split off these votes, and ultimately that's what lost it for Republicans. But I mean, when, yeah, just to go off of that, the yeah. Democrats united, I think, around Peltola very yeah. well, and that made, I think, their campaigning much easier. I mean, while I agree with you, I think Peltola was very well set to do well. Yeah. But I think that those 11,000 wasted ballots that you mentioned are going to be pivotal in I mean, this election. I mean, they're not necessarily wasted, right? Is That's just people that picked only one, one candidate, candidate, not two candidates. So mm, that's true. from the Republican, I, I think from either side's perspective, that's a major criticism of ranked choice mm-hmm. voting is, you know, if you only really like one candidate, do you just put in a random candidate as your second that you might not know about? Do mm-hmm. you just choose one for the sake of choosing? I would say no, that seems pretty undemocratic, and that would be the argument against, but ultimately that's what's happening in mm-hmm. our elections. Yeah, that's why um, I maybe lean more towards against ranked choice voting because yeah. I think go through the primary process. I'm not against a runoff system of, okay, if you don't get 50% of the vote, then the top two candidates proceed. Maybe that's the improvement of ranked choice voting is say, okay, well, Peltola and Palin got the two top two results. Now that baggage has been exhausted, we're going to have another quick election just with those two. So that way you have two ballots that circulate rather than the ranked choice voting because then that maybe gets Palin and or Peltola the chance to reach out to people who voted for the other candidate rather than just simply... Oh, you got to make your decision here and now who you want to rank second. So I think that that's something that could uh, be very uh, – that's me being very critical of ranked choice voting. <laughs> I mean you saw a lot of other Republicans in Congress be very critical of ranked choice voting. But yeah. I mean I'm, I'm not too critical of it necessarily and I don't think this was the best representation of is this a good – situation or is this a good electoral system or not to have i think alaska is a very niche case again going back to why i said maybe referencing maine could help to figure this out and especially with the polarity of these candidates and the general sentiment around palin which i assume we'll get to soon and i I think i think it's more something that the party needs to reflect on from a republican perspective absolutely what is the strategy moving forward and how do we strategize to be able to be successful in ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. And maybe Palin is not the candidate for that, but it's going to be figuring out how do we either then move away from Palin or get people behind Palin. Because I know, going back to your second question, I'm sorry, we got off topic a little bit there, but going back to Peltola's popularity, I mean, I think Peltola has the ability to work with like a Lisa Murkowski figure, Mm -hmm. which can be popular amongst those more left-leaning voters. But in terms of Republicans, this is not popular at all. People do not like Lisa Murkowski. There's a lot of controversy around her. So I think while Peltola 
did win in this regard, I think keeping that seat and keeping that strength of Peltola is going to be incredibly hard, Mm -hmm. especially when you break down what the key issues are right now for Alaskans and you think about the Democratic Party's views on them. I mean, abortion, for example, is incredibly important. For for Alaskans, I actually do think Peltola has the advantage for abortion. She's pro-abortion. Alaskans tend to be pro-abortion. And part of the libertarian it is, aura. It is legalized. Exactly. Alaska. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, she's incredibly worried about climate change. And the majority of Alaskan industry is natural resources. Natural resources prop up Alaska's economy, rather you like it or not. So That's why Palin is saying drill, baby, drill. That's her campaign that is, slogan. Exactly. And if you're going to take this incredibly moderate stance, I, I mean, obviously Peltola can't come in and be a... <laughs> like hardcore left-leaning climate change, you know, individual. But if you're going to have to come in and take this moderate stance, is she even going to have a foothold at that point is my main question. If you're just going to be moderate about climate change because you can't express your very left-leaning views and you're not going to go on a very right-leaning view towards climate change because you don't believe in it, what good do you serve to the Alaskan public? Like, Yeah, no, you're what right. Are, how are Alaskans going to respond to that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think yeah. that's something that we have to watch play out. For sure. And I mean, Paul is riding a high right now. She's got, I think she got the Murkowski endorsement. Mm-hmm. And she's got a lot of people who are close to Don Young to back her as well. So I know that she's boosting her Republican credentials right now. And saying so she's got Republican support, but uh, we'll see how that holds up in, a, in, a, in, in the next Congress if she's elected. There's still the chance she's not elected. Mm-hmm. And it's like rated by pretty much every single, like me, like a election prediction outlet firm as a toss up. So it so could go either way, but we'll see. Certainly, I and think it's also interesting. You can bring in like the PFD fund as well. I mean, Alaskans mm-hmm. very much like the PFD fund. It was the highest this year that it's been in, I think like forty years or something like that. I mean, maybe that's due to inflation, but you have like, <laughs> this incredibly high PFD fund, and when the natural resource industry does well, Alaskans reap the benefits because of it. So it's things like that, that if we're going to be incredibly restrictive on our companies that are functioning in Alaska, I mean, it's going to hurt the PFD fund. It's going to hurt the voters in terms of their work, in terms of the money that they get from the PFD fund, the overall economy of Alaska. I think I think it's going to be a really hard line for her to strike that balance between wanting to have these more democratic-leaning policies on climate and then also having to reckon with the fact that that is the industry in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think President Trump's message of energy independence played very well in Alaska. Yeah. And of course, you see other Republicans trying to jump on that train and say, mm-hmm. this is what we need. I know Palin, as I mentioned, her slogan is Joe Baby Drill, wanting energy independence. And Kelly Shabaka is running a very similar platform. But speaking of Sarah Palin, why is she so divisive in Alaska? Why is... Why is like a Nick Begich being really floated as a as a major challenger, and why would he want to jump in the race to prevent a Palin from being the congresswoman for Alaska? I think Palin falls into the same camp as pretty much every other candidate we have in the lower forty eight and across the country that is going on the Trumpers versus Never Trumpers train. Is you, it just makes any candidate incredibly decisive, divisive to have. Trump backing her and have her having Trump support. I think I think it harms her as well as it plays to her strengths. When she was governor, she was incredibly popular. I know we talked about it a bit before, but she had this 50 to 90% approval rating in 2006, 2007 timeframe, incredibly popular. And I think her resignation definitely hurt her 
her activity uh, with McCain definitely hurt her as well as McCain obviously didn't get uh, the position. I think that all has just slowly broken down Sarah Palin's legacy over time and has really worked to hurt her. And now that she's got the Trump endorsement, has the Trump, like, I guess, ideas behind her. Um, I think I think that just pretty much cracks support for Sarah Palin is you have the Trump supporters that hate Sarah Palin and you have the Trump supporters that support her just because he does. And I think it's really decreased her ability to rally people behind her. But let's talk about her merits. And we talk a lot about, oh, Sarah Palin is not great. But let's talk about what her merits are. What makes her still appealing to Alaska voters? What maybe what were those 32.1% of voters in the first round of the special election? What drove them to turn out for Sarah Palin? I think it's really that Sarah Palin, again, coming back to this point of her and Trump, she functions a lot like Trump does, is Palin says what she thinks and she says what people are thinking but not willing to say. And I think that's incredibly strong. And Sarah Palin takes the big issues for Alaskan Alaskans and she exemplifies them. So if we're talking about something like natural resources, I mean, it, there's no question about what her view is, especially when you're faced with presidents such as Biden, where I don't see how a lot of these people in Alaska could be in support of Biden. That makes Palin incredibly attractive as a candidate. She's got a long career history. She was incredibly popular as governor. Governor. She does put Alaskans first, I think. I, I think there's a lot of strength in saying that she takes the Alaskan way of life, of having your freedoms respected and having these libertarian values. She does put that first. So it's a matter of maybe it's wrangling in like the Trump side of the Palin following uh, and the Trump support of Palin to really get back to those core values to propagate her forward. But I do think she does hold the values that Alaskans treasure. So why are Republicans so divided between Palin and Begich? Is it the Trump factor that just a lot of Trump Republicans are skeptical of Palin? Like, why is there that divide between Republicans on the House front? Whereas on the Senate, it seems like every Trump Republican has come around to supporting Kelly Shabak, and she has Trump's endorsement as well. I think it's based on who they're competing against, really, as I think. When we are looking at the House, it's very much, I think, that Trump endorsement hurts Palin. And I think some of Palin's own history as a leader does hurt her. But in terms of Senate versus House, I mean, overwhelmingly, there is low support for Lisa Murkowski. And a lot of Republicans are incredibly critical about her, especially in a lot of like the wake of recent events is her approval ratings are dropping. There's a lot of controversy, again, looking at how she got that seat. And she's just really not favored. So I think when you go to the Senate, it's a little bit easier for a Trump-supported candidate or even a re just a Republican in general to come in and compete with Lisa Murkowski as she does flip on issues. She does go and lean towards the Democrats, which I think on critical issues too. is incredibly unattractive, mm -hmm. you know, as a, just as a leader and as a Republican. So I think that makes it a little bit easier in terms of the Senate for Republicans to come and advance their way forward. I think in terms of the House, though, is that Peltola, she does have a relatively successful career history, but she's also newer. Is We haven't experienced Peltola yet in that seat, and people want to. It's a change. It's something new. You're not cracking the party amongst the lines of baggage versus Palin in the Senate. So I think, okay, that got a little disorganized, but I think that's, like, I think that's really harming Alaskans uh, when you're looking at this House election, is that you're cracking the party between these two candidates, and you're also, you have 
this new person that has a lot more opportunity. Whereas Lisa Murkowski, I think people are starting to see her as a whoosh. That's just going to flip a rhino. She's, she's seen as like the top rhino. rhino, right? Yeah. Her and Manchin are the top rhinos. Well, Manchin is, Manchin is, an, is a Democrat. Like well, a, yeah. Democrats call him a dino, right? Yeah. The Democrat yeah. name only. I would push back on that. He still has a very high Biden rating. Yeah. If you look at 538, yeah, I, I think. I guess Democrat rhino. I guess dino. A dino. Like Democrat yep. name only. And do you think that Kelly Shabaka with the Trump endorsement could unseat Murkowski or will Democrats save her? And I think for Shavaka, I mean, I, I would like to say that, as I was saying earlier, is that, you know, Murkowski has that low approval rating and tends to flip. But I think it's going to be incredibly hard to unseat her is between her and her father. She has been like that name has such a high legacy in that seat. And I also think it will run into the issue of do people support the Trump endorsement and also just getting that name recognition out there as much as people don't like Murkowski. Everybody knows the name Murkowski. Meanwhile, for Shabaka, I think it's going to be incredibly hard to get her name out there, and then also prove herself as a candidate. I mean, I'm not saying that she's not qualified or she's not going to be a good candidate, but I think just because that name has such a legacy, it's going to be hard to get rid of the Murkowskis. Yeah, and and Murkowski is in a unique spot where she has the backing of the NRSC, so the National Republican Mm -hmm. Senatorial Committee, and uh, just as an incumbent, quote-unquote, Republican senator, uh, she she has like the backing of Mitch McConnell, and she even has the backing of Joe Manchin. Ironically, we're just talking about the Democrat and the vote of the Democrats. So that, she ha- yeah. and she has a Democratic vote, so <laughs> yeah. I think that it is it's it's a very difficult task uh, for Shabaka to overcome. I don't I don't think but, it, I I don't see it happening because I mean you're saying exactly what it is is that Murkowski is going to have the Democratic vote, and then she's also going to have. The side of the Republican Party, the never Trumpers, or just yeah, the, the this maybe not never Trumpers, but just like the not like super Trump folks in the party that are all the moderates. Yeah. The moderates, yeah. I, I think that's incredibly hard to beat. I think a lot of people have said, oh, yeah, Murkowski's going to win. I think more and more people each day are, are acknowledging Murkowski's going to win, which I think makes a Shabaka upset more and more shocking if it does happen. I think it could still happen. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Alaska still voted for President Trump by 10 points. So it shows that he still has appeal I mean, he has in the, Alaska. Yeah. I think he has the appeal, but it's who is he running against, right? Is it like a, a Trump versus Biden, Biden, I think, is a lot easier to decide on, for, like if, uh, for Alaska to decide on. But in terms of Murkowski versus, versus Shabaka, I, I think that's probably not equivalent to Trump versus Biden. As I think like Biden's energy policies, Biden's Second Amendment policies and all of that really sunk him uh, Mm. in Alaska. But in terms of Shabaka versus Murkowski, I think it's exactly kind of what we're saying is that you have that Democrat vote behind Murkowski as well as that half of the party that's not for Trump. Mm -hmm. I I think it's going to be incredibly hard. Yeah, I would agree. And one last question I have before we let you go is, do you think Alaska will take further moves to the left moving forward? Uh, or do you think Alaska will remain a red state for years to come? I mean, a lot of Democrats are saying blue Alaska is coming, not only just because of the House seat with Mary Poltola, but also, I mean, Murkowski is basically a Democrat. <laughs> and we saw the margins in 2020 be significantly closer than 2016. I mean, I believe Trump won Alaska by 14, 15 points and only won it by 10 in 2020, I mean, Don Young won it by nine uh, in 2020. So do you, and a lot of that is in the Anchorage area. You're seeing the er, everything outside of Anchorage is seemingly going Republican. Like all the native tribe, tribal areas are, are actually going 
towards Republicans. But I think there a lot yeah. of the shifts are in Anchorage. It's all it's all going to, I think, depend on the South Central area. Definitely. Um, I think looking at it, you know, it depends how many people show up to vote. I ultimately think is that you have a very low turn voter turnout in Alaska. So I think that's what's really hurting kind of which way Alaska is going to go. I think if we are to have this big wave of Republicans come out to vote, I think it's no doubt Alaska will go to the right. I mean, only about three sevenths of Alaskans vote, which sounds like a lot, but it's only about 700,000 people. Mm -hmm. So it's not many people. And they're majority coming from the South Central region. So I think it's really going to depend on who comes out to vote. Is it going to be the people that are in the cities that are going to have those more left-leaning views coming out to vote? Or are we going to get some of that more Republican base showing up to the polls? And that's incredibly Mm -hmm. important. Um, I think it also depends on where where we're going nationally with some of these big key ticket items is, you know, things such as abortion, Second Amendment rights, inflation, spending, things of that nature. I think it depends on what the candidates are looking like for the presidential election and even for, you know, Senate and House elections on these issues is Alaska tends to be in favor of abortion. So they're going to vote within that regard. But when we're looking at things such as inflation or these climate change policies, I just do not see Alaska falling behind a blue candidate, like a left-leaning candidate. So in terms of going to red to blue, I think Alaska is definitely, I would say, staying red is you have these independent voters coming out. It's a very, um, I would say, pretty well split usually between Republicans and Democrats is you're not necessarily exactly 50-50, but you're not super far off or super far leaning one way. So I think ultimately, if we're looking at the shift of Alaska, it's going to be where these independent voters are going to be basing their votes. And I think also Alaska has the ability to have voters swing from one party to the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, again, Alaska's libertarian nature, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very like libertarian blue is, you know, we say Democrats, but it's not the same Democrats you would encounter mm-hmm. in a California or in a D.C. It's, you know, or yeah, it's got an incredibly libertarian base behind it where they might be Democrats, but they're likely still pro Second Amendment. They're likely not going to try to take down these big fracking corporations, you know, maybe just put some restrictions on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would put New Hampshire and Alaska in a similar boat, that they love libertarian Mm -hmm. politics. Like they're in New Hampshire, you're a neocon, you're a war hawk, they don't like you. But at the same time, they're they're very, you know, they're they like, they're very pro-abortion, they're very pro- like LGBT rights and things like that. and Yeah, I think that's what it's going to come down to for Alaska yeah. is, you know, if abortion mm-hmm. is still going to be kind of the main center topic. Yeah. I, I, say, I think exit polls are going to be yeah. a really good indication of what happens. Yeah. You know, we're seeing a Rovember, quote unquote, I think start to fade more and more. So I think that's going to help Republicans yeah. down ballot. I think it really will. That abortion, if, if you had this election, I mean, the Peltol election in August, abortion was the national conversation. Yeah. Right. So now the conversation has shifted back to the economy. I mean, we're seeing CNN polls. If CNN is saying this, you know, it's it might be even worse than what they're saying. Saying like 40 plus percent of Americans rank inflation in the economy as their number one issue. That is a huge number. I mean, in the 2020 election, it was not like close to 30 percent, maybe a little bit less. I think it was like 27 percent. This is 42 percent or more. 
of, of people saying the economy is number one and who consistently wins the economy? It's Republicans. You have all these polls that say which party is best on your top issue. Republicans are winning it by double digits. And I mean, you're seeing a lot of conflicting data from the from the pollsters. They say, oh, no, but this race is close. So Democrats are doing well here. But then at the same time, when you ask people, what are your top issues and which party do you like more on the issues? Republicans come out on he- come out ahead. And they're saying, oh, Republicans are barely going to win the House majority. Yeah. If Democrats are afraid of Oregon's 6th district, I know this is a, if you're on, if you're well versed with like a conservative election Twitter and election conversations, Democrats are freaking out about Oregon's 6th district, which is a Biden plus 13, 14 or 15 suburb. This is like ground zero for never Trump, never Trumpism. And Democrats are worried about losing that seat. So if they're worried about Oregon. Oregon's sixth district, and they're worried about the Oregon gubernatorial race too. But they're worried about or this congressional district in Oregon that should be very favorable turf for Democrats. What does it say for the national uh, environment? What does it mm-hmm. say for the for the rest of the country? I mean, and Alaska's included in that. I think that if they're worried about Oregon, they should be worried about Alaska. I mean, yeah. I know that Paltola is the incumbent. I'm sure that's going to garner her votes. I know people who vote purely based off of incumbents, but I know people who also purely vote against incumbents. But typically, it's more people vote for incumbents than, than against incumbents. <laughs> but given this hostility towards status quo, and you can, you can give the Alaska perspective, but this hostility towards the status quo, I think Alaska is a, is a very anti-status quo state. Mm-hmm. I mean, given the libertarian nature of the state, it's just anti-status quo. I mean, one of the things, too, to consider, Ian, that I don't think we've talked about is we keep talking about, you know, we bring up the economy, we bring up climate change, those kind of policies. Defense also. Alaska is not far from Russia. And I think that is something that is going to play into how Alaskans are voting, or at least if it's not right now, it should. Uh, If anyone else from Alaska is listening (laughs) to this and you're not thinking about that, you should. I mean, it's incredibly close by. And I think with all the conflict happening in Russia right now, that also needs to be something that Alaskans take into vote. So rather that's something that they challenge the status quo of the Murkowski types um, or even like the Biden types, you know, if they're challenging the left with things such as defense issues, I don't see how that isn't going to be just an absolute win for the Republican Party is mm-hmm. coupling defense with the economy. I, I think Republicans have a pretty good seat in Alaska right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know <laughs> Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy did say we might reduce aid on you to Ukraine, but I think it's more when we talk about defense issues and Republicans winning, I think it's more of we're going to strengthen up, we're going to beef up our military yeah, so that if we need yeah. it, we can use it. I don't think it's necessarily a Ukraine no, issue. And not but. necessarily on the basis of Ukraine, but just Alaska having their defenses and having that strong mm-hmm. military. I mean, just there the in case the Russians, it's the closest state to Alaska it's a, it's by far. Closest, I mean, Alaska is the closest state to Russia. And, you know, bring up Sarah Palin's most infamous quote that wasn't even her saying it is the point of seeing Russia, you know, that somehow her most famous quote wasn't even said <laughs> by her. But, you know, it's not necessarily untrue is that Alaska is incredibly close to mm-hmm. Russia and they do have conflicts with Russia, rather it's over natural resources or even Russian planes coming just a little too close to Alaskan airspace is this is a concern and it affects Alaskans daily. Rather, it's you're somebody in the military in Alaska and you're having to respond to that or just a concerned citizen. I think this definitely is going to work in the Republicans favor in Alaska. Yeah, no, that's absolutely yeah. I don't spot think on. it's necessarily going to be about Ukraine, but it's going to be about our own defenses and protecting ourselves. 
I mean, yeah, as as you mentioned, Palin puts Alaskans first, and, and we're in this or of uh, this movement of America first Republicans. So I think that saying we're going to defend ourselves first and foremost, we're going to put our country's interests first. Russia, you want to mess with us, then you'll get into trouble. Mm-hmm. I think that that's I think a great message that Republicans could run on as well. Not yeah. to say, oh, we're going to be so hawkish on yeah, foreign no, policy, but just say, you mess with us, we'll hit you 10 times harder. Yeah, it's that I kind mean, of retaliatory. We shouldn't lob anything from Alaska over to Russia, but we should put up the biggest wall of our defenses that we can and say, mm. hey, if you want to you know, do something vice versa and send anything towards Alaska, you will have some price to pay for yeah. that. You'll I think suffer the consequences of your I, actions. I think that that needs to be something important that the Republican Party tries to drive forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know uh, it, it still scares me to this day to think that if the Russians hadn't sold Alaska to the U.S. way back when, and thinking the Cold War, they would have had a nuclear missile site right next to the United States. Certainly. So, I mean, the the Russia factor, I think, is definitely a big, the big deal in Alaska as well, more than any other U.S. state. Yeah. By any means, I mean, you ask somebody, even in Washington State, which I guess is the closest state to Alaska, they'll say, eh, you know, Russia's far enough from us; we're not as worried. That just shows you how big. The U.S. is in Alaska is the U.S.'s largest state, even though maps deceive you and it doesn't look that way. Alaska <laughs> is the bit largest state in the union. So, I mean, my home state of Texas is number two, even though we're, I think, pretty far behind Alaska. But still, You're we're pretty far behind. <laughs> we're, we're, num- we're number two. We're number two. But uh, Mia, it was so great having you on. Thank you so much thank for you. for for bringing such great analysis about Alaska politics. And you're welcome on anytime. No, thank you so much, Ian. It was great to talk about this.